As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show, and hey, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a review of Euro 2022. We're at the final four, and the juggernauts looking to score and write themselves into law are England, Sweden, Germany, and France, all hard to ignore. There's no huge surprises there as we close in on the final stages of this affair, as those four sides we probably expected to do well and attain, but let's pour some out for the Netherlands and Spain. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who loves a major tournament semi-final in Rotherham as much as the next man. Is that right, Taylor Rockwell? Of course. I was just getting my, my history slash slash like commerce education on Rotherham and it sounds like it's a lovely cosmopolitan area <laughs> for uh, internationals to go and live. Indeed. Uh, Graham Rutherham also joining us. Graham telling us before the show that uh, France have had the misfortune of playing all their games in Rotherham. I shouldn't say misfortune, I should say different fortune. <laughs> yes, you've been very diplomatic there. Certainly more diplomatic than we were being when before we started recording. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I heard that fact that France have played all of their games in Rotherham. I then decided to check where their semi-final is being played. Milton Keynes. So that is the, the tour of England that France are getting at this, the, that, this tournament. Congratulations, France. Yeah, we really served them up the poo-poo platter of worst places there i'm sorry france i'm so sorry about that uh, is this is this a situation in which like because we've talked about kareem diakre a lot and how she has a very sort of like domineering personality she wants the team run a certain way is this a like sauron in mordor sort of situation like should france this this very sort of like maybe dysfunctional maybe angry team be put in a place like rotherham is that the ideal home base graham is that what i'm hearing from you Yes, absolutely. I think okay, that was the, the thinking behind it was France, the only place that we can put France. I mean, when we, when, when all the countries, Scotland included, went to the 2019 World Cup, you know, we went to Paris, Lyon, Marseille, all these wonderful, wonderful cities, but we're repaying the favour to France by putting them in Rotherham and, and Milton Keynes. <laughs> Indeed. Well, in the interest of balance, we should probably list off, I'm going to list off real quick all the great things about Rotherham. So, rounding out our pack is a man who might be surprised to learn that the winner of Euro 2022 gets 660,000 euros. Joe Lowry 
That is the amount they get, 660,000 euros. Would you like to guess how much the men's Euro 2020 winner, Italy, oh, no. took home? A, a lot more than that. 660,000 does not feel like very much at all. I think mm. I think the U.S. women's national team players individually earned something that would total up to something far more than 660,000 in that recent CONCACAF W Championship win. Ryan, what what is it? The men's prize, Joe Lowry, for Euro 2020 was 10 million euros. Uh, which Yikes. is quite a bit higher than 660,000. Uh, the total prize money that Italy took home from that tournament was 34 million euros. And yet Italy still hasn't built a single road without potholes in it. I can't <laughs> explain it. I don't know. I don't know. But the maximum the women's winner will win uh, if they've won all their group stage games, which I believe certainly England could do, is 2 million and 85 euros. So slightly less. That, Joe, is about two weeks of Frankie de Jong's current Barcelona salary or pre Garnished salary, should we say? I don't know. <laughs> the The amount that Frankie the Young must hate Manchester to continue to endure <laughs> all of this just chaos at Barcelona, being asked what feels like dozens of times to reduce his wages, it, it, it is absurd to me. He must absolutely abhor England, like Ryan and Graham, and now maybe Taylor hate. What is it? What's the city, Graham? Roth, Roth, one more time. Rotherham. Rotherham. I was definitely listening when we were all talking before. Also, <laughs> setting all of that aside, Ryan, you have one Taylor Swift he, t- a tweet go by, go viral, and all of a sudden yeah. you are dropping Taylor Swift references in your intros. I like it. I'm honestly here. Yeah, for it. I've got yeah. T Swift on the brain. Graham, did you He's see about fil- my Taylor Swift tweet? We all I did saw see it, that. Ryan. Everyone you're, saw you're, it. Yeah, tw- all of Twitter saw it. You're a full blown Swifty now. I see that. I am indeed. The, the, the Swift hive uh, <laughs> latched onto me very quickly this week when I took a video of her in a concert. Uh, long story short. Uh, and I'm now, um, I've got, do you know how many more extra followers, Graham, I got from uh, from uh, post that video, which has nearly a million views? Uh, something like eight is normally the way it goes. <laughs> I think it was less than eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, let's talk Euro 2022. Uh, guys, I wanted to get sort of your general thoughts on the tournament so far. Taylor, I think the standard of play has been really, really good. I think it's been very technical. I think it's been... Uh, you know, the fast-paced games. And I was comparing it in my mind to the 2019 World Cup, and this feels like a, a higher standard of play. Is that fair of me to say, or is it just I'm sort of, I'm just fresh off watching the quarters and I'm seeing two big teams go at one another, and maybe uh, there's some recency bias there, Taylor? I think that's kind of the case with the Euros a lot of the time. I think because you get teams, like, like it's it's a bit more competitive. I think they're in a tighter competitive environment. I think there's just, there's more... I think like the the lower end is a higher end basically whereas like when we go back to 2019 Women's World Cup Thailand getting trounced by the United States I think that Thailand team would probably get trounced by pretty much every team at the Euros this summer. And I think maybe that's a bad example to go with the worst team at the Women's World Cup but I think there were plenty of teams once they expanded the size of that format you didn't get as sort of wholly strong competition across the board. And I think you ended up getting a few teams that were overly defensive. I don't feel like we've had as many of those teams in this competition or those that we have had have been knocked out. Usually in a tournament, you'll get one of those super defensive teams make it through and and they knock out teams that maybe we would rather see advance. In this case, I feel like we've got four very good teams in our semifinals and we've had overall a pretty high standard of competition to get here. That's fair to say. Um, Graham, just pick up on that Thailand comment. I think Northern Ireland maybe would be on par with that Thailand team. Is that fair? Am I being harsh on Northern Ireland? Um, I'm not sure. I don't really have the knowledge of of, of the Thai national team to compare to, to the Northern Irish team. But I think it's certainly the case, obviously, with the Euros being smaller tournaments, 16 teams compared to 24 in the 2019 World Cup. It certainly feels like the the... the 
the condensed nature of the tournament has contributed to a higher water level just in terms of the quality. I've been really impressed with particularly the pressing from a number of teams. So obviously mm. in, in the modern game, pressing is a, is, a, is a buzzword. We see lots of club teams doing it, but it's very difficult to implement at international level. But there's been a, a common theme throughout this tournament of really intelligent pressing play, whether that's from Germany, whether that, that's from England in that demolition of Norway, that was very impressive, whether it was from Austria, who are slightly more limited team. I felt they were very smart and when they chose to press. So I, I think that has been proof that even in the international game where you have less time with these players, you can still implement a very smart tactical game plan. And that has maybe been, I read, I think it was Michael Cox wrote about this for The Athletic. That has been a, a trend throughout this tournament and might be a little bit of a uh, a turning point, I guess, for women's international soccer where people's coaches' eyes are being open to that possibility. Joe, are you buying my narrative of um, the technical side of the game being improved in this tournament? Uh, on the whole, yes, but I think it's more down to who is involved in this tournament, and particularly we're all coming off of watching these quarterfinal games, which I thought were largely excellent in the, in the Euros. So there is a much tighter gap between teams that are playing, by and large, maybe with the exception of, of one of these quarterfinals, Sweden versus Belgium. But really, by and large, there's a lot of good teams in this tournament. UEFA has the highest composition of really good teams in the entire world when you're looking at different confederations in FIFA. So it's not all that surprising to me that we'll get a better and more consistent, maybe is the way that I would describe it, on-field product in a tournament like this with teams just from Europe. Yeah, and a very closely fought quarterfinals they were, Joe. We had Spain, Belgium, Austria, and the Netherlands all going out at this stage. Three of those quarterfinal games decided by late or extra time goals. And all pretty close contests, one could argue, as well. Um, Taylor, we, the two teams who stood out to me who are no longer in this contest were probably Spain and the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands, in particular, reigning champions who've been sent home, of course. Um, what, what do you think? Would they be disappointed with that? Would they, they, they feel they deserve to go further in this tournament? I mean, as I say, that the uh, the quarterfinal with France was a pretty tight affair. Um, I think Spain will probably feel more aggrieved to not have gone farther than the Netherlands. I yeah. didn't feel like the Dutch were particularly up for that game against uh, France, to be honest. I thought they, they played okay, obviously. Uh, it, it took a while for France to eventually make things happen or to eventually like seal that win. But... Overall, it felt like the Dutch sort of didn't really get going. I think some of that has to do with Mark Parsons. I equate it with uh, Vlatko taking over the U.S. women and going to the Olympics in fairly like short turnaround time, maybe not being able to get some of his principles across, although maybe he still hasn't gotten some of his principles across. But still, uh, I think we'll see what happens with the Dutch once they have more time with their coach. Um, but Spain, I think, were the ones that... Watching that game again, it felt like they were, there really was a, a reality in which they held on and were able to get past England because I thought they yeah. created better chances. I thought they moved the ball better. I thought England at times looked sort of shocked that a team was trying to play football against them. <laughs> I, I don't know if England's defensive approach was the best in the first half. I think they, they got it right in the second and obviously turned that one around. But I felt like Spain were the team that I would have liked to see more of in this competition. Credit to the, the Netherlands for what they did, especially with some of the injuries and absences they had. But I, I, I still think maybe they were slightly outclassed by France. Well, and, and Taylor, sorry, to go back to that, that Parsons and Vlaco comparison, I think it's even... Maybe I'm taking us on a bit of a, a pivot here, but I think it's favorable to Vlaco. I think Parsons is in a, is in a much more challenging situation yeah, that's with fair. the Netherlands. Vlaco had 
more than a year and a half between when he was hired in the Olympics, which I think is is plenty of time. I know one of those years was COVID year in 2020, but he had a lot of time to prepare that U.S. team for the Olympics. Mark Parsons is hired just about a, a year ago now, and it seems like issues with the Netherlands are running deeper than just on-field problems that they're having against one of the best teams in the world. It seems like he's he's lost sections of that locker room based off of comments yeah. that have been made about players just saying he's, he's talking too much, he talks too much in team talks. We're just not listening to him anymore. We just tune him out after a while. That's an was, issue. That was and, roared, right? I yeah, I believe roared. so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, think, I think she said like, "Oh, I meant that as a joke," but uh-huh. then afterwards did say like, <laughs> "Yeah, we were kind of confused with some of the instructions." So it feels like maybe kidding on the square. I think is what Al Franken calls that when you're kind of joking but also kind of serious. And, and that's what that feels like to me. And you could tell how disorganized they were against France. They, I, I know that game ends up being very close in France when one nil in extra time. But France was the better team all the way around. I thought it was a really poor performance from the Netherlands. The possession spacing was bad. Not nearly enough options for the ball carrier when they did have the ball. They struggled to defend in transition. They got picked apart by France at times in possession. I thought they were poor in this game. And for me, Ryan, to go back to sort of your question about the Netherlands and Spain and and just pointing out those two teams as as being ones that are, are quality sides that end up dropping out in the quarterfinals, I think Spain is the one that I am I'm much more... I'm sad to see them leave relative to the Netherlands because I really don't think the Netherlands had much more to give in this competition. Yeah, I think there is a common thread between Spain and Netherlands in terms of the amount that was thrown at them in this tournament. So Mark Parsons with the Netherlands, obviously he comes in late. He has to finish the NWSL season before he can fully move over to this this new job. Uh, the Dutch, they lose two first-team players in the first half of, the, of their first match. They then lost uh, Gronin and, and Miedema to COVID. And I don't think Miedema, looking at how she played, the match against France, it's quite clear to say to see she she either wasn't fully recovered from that or she wasn't sharp enough or fit enough. That I just felt like she wasn't fully engaged in that match. And then similar similarly with Spain, you know they they lose Pateas, the the best player in the world, just before the start of the tournament, and they also ha- lose uh, Hermoso, the second best player in the world on the recent Ballon d'Or voting, just before the start of the tournament. And also that's that's your that's your your striker and your main creator as well. So that's a, a pretty fundamental unit within the team unit as as a whole. So I think that Spain and Netherlands did have a lot thrown at them in this tournament, but there are certain teams at this tournament who have been emboldened by their manager. I would say England with Srina Wiegmann and uh, Austria Austria with uh, Irene Furman. They are better teams because of their managers. And then I think you have teams that are almost limited by their managers. And I think in these quarterfinals, we saw the Dutch being limited by Mark Parsons, who I'm not sure what the tactical approach is from him. Maybe he's going to implement a, a clearer tactical approach once he's had a bit more time with these players. And then Jorge Vilda, with the changes that he made, where it felt like Spain really had the momentum and control in that match, you contrast the changes he made in that game with the changes that Wiegmann made and they had com- the complete opposite effect where Spain went much more passive and kind of invited England on top of them. So I think even though there are caveats and qualifications to say that Spain and Netherlands, they did have a lot thrown at them, some of the some of the decisions by their managers were, were questionable to say the least. So our semi-finals are set. We've got England against Sweden on Tuesday, the, uh, July 26th. That's tomorrow as we record. That one's going to be at Bramall Lane. It's going to be shown apparently in London's Trafalgar Square on a big screen to 5,000 fans as well. And the following evening, Germany versus France in Mil- Milton Keynes? 
Milton Keynes. I've never heard of it. It's uh, apparently somewhere in um, in England that one is. Um, so that one, obviously, a huge game as well. Uh, before we get to previewing those semis, perhaps we should talk a little bit about what we learned from those participating teams at the corner final stage. Graham, Germany, eight-time winners. Uh, what do we make of them so far? I sort of when I when I first started talking about uh, or sort of doing um, writing my notes up for this podcast, I was thinking. Mm. Germany just going to win this, aren't they? But I don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah, so so in the end, Germany went through, which we all would have predicted before the, the start of the quarterfinals. But I don't think the final scoreline really told the full tale of this quarterfinal. This was the first time in this tournament that we saw some weaknesses from Germany. And, and Austria deserve a lot of credit for how they exposed those weaknesses in general. I think Austria leave these Euros as as a team that outperformed themselves most of all, maybe more than any other team. I think most expect them to get knocked out of the group stages. Obviously, they were in that group with with England and Norway. Norway being they were they were largely seen as one of the contenders, so they were expected to go through. Austria um, pipped them to that second place finish, and um, I think this match really showed what Austria do well. And when I look back at the quarterfinals, I, I think in terms of blockbuster value, you'd say that the England-Spain match was one of the most memorable. But in terms of the actual football on the pitch, this, ma- this match might have been the best of the four. It was okay. a really high-quality back-and-forth match between two intelligent, creative teams who wanted to have a go in their own way. And I think Germany, before this game, had destroyed teams through high-intensity, high-pressing, and of course, ultimately, they did that, certainly with the the second goal where Zinsberger takes way too much time in the ball and Pop closes it down, and, and that's the game over. But until that until that point, Austria had had, they had the quality to push back Germany, particularly down the flanks, and I thought that made for a really interesting match, and Austria had opportunities. They troubled Germany from set pieces, which we hadn't really seen before. They um, they hit the, the woodwork twice. They, they For the first time, it was in the 13th minute, which would have put them 1-0 up. And I am disappointed that we didn't see Austria go ahead in this game because I, I ultimately think Germany would have found a way through the match, but I, I kind of wanted to see how they would do it because they haven't conceded a goal in this game. They obviously haven't fallen behind in, the, in this tournament. Sorry, I should say they haven't conceded in this tournament and they haven't fallen behind in this tournament. So they haven't really had to respond to much adversity, certainly in terms of the scoreline. So I kind of wanted to see what would happen in that case. But Austria, even though they lost this match, they, they leave this tournament with a lot of credit. Germany certainly weren't at their best, but on the positive side of this match for them, they solved another problem. They came out of that Spain quarter, sorry, the the Spain first game in the group stage. They answered that question. They've now faced a well-organized Austria team who tested them on the on the counter attack. And let's not forget, Austria do have quality players: Nicole Bila, Puntigam, eh, Zadrazil, Barbara Dunst had a very good tournament, and Germany came out on top in this game as well. So, in a strange way, I feel like if you're going to win a major tournament, you kind of need a game at some point. In the tournament where you are tested, you maybe aren't at your best, but you grind out that result. And in a strange way, Germany might come out of this match with more confidence in that they didn't play well, but they're still in this tournament. I don't know if France can do a lot of what Austria did. Obviously, they have the the technical ability to do so, but Austria's press was so relentless at times. Looking at the numbers, for Germany to have 76% pass completion, yeah, that's still above three quarters. But normally, I think, especially with a team like Germany, you're looking for like mid-80s at at a minimum uh, when it comes to ball retention, pass completion. And that was the thing that stood out to me in this game was how often Germany were giving the ball away and just being a little bit careless in possession because of that press because I think they were were sort of uncomfortable. 
And I think if France can do the same thing, go at them, not give them the time, sort of limit them when they try to build out, I think it's going to be a bigger issue for Germany to overcome. I think they're certainly confident in getting past Austria comfortably in the end. But there were still more warning signs from this game than I think I've seen from Germany overall, including the way they defend set pieces. I'd like to talk about that for a second, because <laughs> the, the the thing that I see regularly from Germany is they put two like at the top of the box, close to the corner flag uh, where the kick is being taken. And that seemed to be regardless of whether or not there were two players over there, even if it was just the one, they still put numbers over there. Then they had six inside the uh, six-yard box pretty regularly, and then only one, maybe two, outside or between the six-yard box and the top of the 18. And there were so many chances for Austria, like open headers or relatively open headers, because they would just put the ball towards the penalty spot. I think the idea with Germany is you attack that ball, everybody knows where they're supposed to attack, and that's how you win. But if you don't, uh, or if maybe there's some confusion as to who's supposed to go where, that left some open headers. And against France, I feel like there's a particular <laughs> player who's pretty good in the air who might cause some problems on that one. <laughs> yeah, the cheat the cheat codes, I think, yeah. as we know, Color Taylor yes. after last yes. week. One, one of the one of the best moments I think of this entire round of play. We're talking about Wendy Renard, just in case there's anybody out there yeah, that, that doesn't Joe. know that. Just to clarify. Uh, she almost scores this yeah. just game-winning corner kick header in the 93rd minute uh, in, in their match against the Netherlands. So it's nil-nil at that point in the game, and they end up, France, having to, to go into extra time and, and win it there. But, man, that header, it felt to me like watching an NBA game and, and watching sort of LeBron get the ball in and around the three-point line, and it's it's the clock's about to expire, and that's basically where we were in this particular <laughs> game. Yeah, the, the buzzer's about to go. And Renard takes the header. It's LeBron shooting in that moment. And the shot doesn't go in. But it just felt like a totally scripted, if you're watching the Lakers player or you know whatever team LeBron's mm-hmm. been on over the last decade, you're watching that team play and he gets the ball. You're thinking, okay, everyone in the arena knows what's about to happen. Everyone watching that France-Netherlands game knew exactly what France were looking for on that corner. And they find Renard with a, a pretty good ball in. And she does get her head on it. And it, it doesn't end up finding the back of the net. But... That was just an incredibly scripted moment, but just another reminder that even yeah. if you're prepared for Wendy Renard, and Taylor, I think you're doing a good job of laying out why Germany might not be totally repaired, prepared for that, it's still just an incredibly difficult moment to stop, which is actually why, partly why I think France is, a, is such a good team. And I, I probably have them down as favorites in this game against Germany, but I certainly have this as the more entertaining game of the two semifinals relative to England versus Sweden. I, I think France are... So entertaining to me, both because you have uh, some of the the chaos going on behind the scenes, and and that's not exactly an ideal situation for France. But on the field, they have this really nice mix of directness and transition and and quality combination play and possession and threat on set pieces. For me, I think they might be the most well-rounded team in this tournament. England, England might have a shout for that, but... I left watching these games in particular and watching earlier in this tournament feeling like France can win games in in at least three different ways. You toss and they're defending and that's maybe a fourth. And they're really hard to stop. And the Netherlands certainly couldn't stop them in this game. And it'll be interesting to go back to what you said, Taylor, to see how Germany deal with France on some of those set pieces. Yeah, and and with that in mind, one other little thing on the set pieces. A thing that that they seem to be doing, France, is you're aiming for Wendy Renard, as you would, uh, and and she wins the header. But a lot of the time, Mbak, her center-back partner, Mbak, her center-back partner, uh, will then go to the opposite side. So if the ball is going to the back post for Renard, Mbak will run to the near post, basically. And it seems to be sometimes Renard goes for the shot on goal. Sometimes she's just trying to put it back across because if everybody goes to her and tries to win and battle her, if she can 
went and headed back over. Now you've got a player wide open. And that was the thing that they looked for a couple times against the Dutch. I've seen them do that previously in this tournament. And for Germany, if you're going with that sort of sitting deep and then attacking and trying to win the ball there, that doesn't lend itself to also tracking those secondary runs. And maybe there's a sneaky design set piece uh, goal in this one for France. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit more about France and also England and Sweden as we look towards the semifinals. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking Euro 2022. Joe Lowry, in our show notes, um, you have written, France is so good, uh, period. Yes, I feel that way. And I, I think it's pretty clear when you watch this team. I mentioned before the break a lot of what I like about them. They're well-rounded. You see quality work in possession. They're incredibly dangerous on the break. I thought both Diani, who started on the right wing, and, and Millard, who started up top, not the first choice there for France up top, but man, I thought they were both brilliant. And then you have Cascarino cutting in on the left, uh, so from the left with her right foot, and she's phenomenal. We see that in in Liga as well. I mean, she's she's just so so good. Not Liga, but you see you see that in France. She's incredibly electric on the ball with some of her skill. That front three is is incredible. And then you have quality in midfield to come and and sweep up plays and to progress through those spaces. And Renard anchoring things in the back, not just with her aerial ability, but one thing that I think goes underrated about her is her distribution. I mean, her quality on the ball, her ability to break lines is so good. She's one of the best in the world from what I've seen at doing that kind of thing. And that sets up France for success in a number of different phases of play. She can start attacks on the break uh, with, with both head clearances and with the ball at her feet. She can also break lines in possession to help feed either France's number eights in that 4-3-3 or to feed the front line. She's really good, and I'm not breaking any news with that. But France, I thought, are just this really well-rounded team. And I think that's part of what's going to make this matchup against Germany so entertaining. I, I think likely Germany is going to lean into the press. We certainly saw that against Austria. That was the defining theme of that game. And Germany are a good pressing team. They went player for player at times against Austria, left themselves a little exposed at the back, but it was some of that risk that set up their goals, both of them, not just the one that Graham already talked about, but the first one as well that we saw from Germany in that match against Austria. So I expect Germany will press and they'll likely forfeit some of the ball to France. How do France build through that pressure? How do they advance and create chances in the attack if and when they do break through that pressure? And then for Germany, how effective can they be in the moments when they have the ball? How do they take advantage of the talent they have? And there is real talent in that German team, don't get me wrong. There's quality in that group. Magol is is phenomenal. She is awesome to watch as that number 10 in Germany's 4 2 3 one she combines, she drifts, she clearly understands space and knows when and where to release the ball. She's brilliant. And then you have Clara Bull as well on the wing. She had some really nice moments against Austria on the left. And then Lena Oberdorf is one other player in particular that I'm going to be watching for 
for Germany in that game because France has a lot of physicality in addition to the technical quality. They are a well-rounded team, as I've said. Lena Oberdorf, as that number six, really the more defensive-minded midfielder for Germany in their midfield shape, she was everywhere against Austria. She was excellent, uh, defensively in particular. She was off and on maybe a little bit in possession, but where she, where she shines is when Germany don't have the ball. So, so many fascinating figures in this semifinal game. So many, oh, I guess, two really quality styles of play and teams that clearly know how to win games. I think France, in my mind, has the slight edge here, but Germany have done a lot and deserve respect for what they've done. I wouldn't be surprised if they come out there and really give France some problems in the semifinals. I- I'm certainly more suspicious of France, I think, Joe, than than you are. Look, at this stage of the tournament, we've got four high-quality teams, and it would not surprise me at all if France went on and won this whole thing. They certainly have the the individual quality to do that. But if if I'm comparing them to um, a men's team, just because that's a frame of reference that we, we, we have and a lot of our, our listeners will have, to me, they are Real Madrid in the Champions League last season. And I'm suspicious of their overall structure and just general ta- tactical acumen. And I think one major blow was losing Katoto to injury. Uh, Mary Antoinette Katoto, one of the, the, the best number nines in the world. And I know Melvin Mallard has, has come into that team and she's done a good job. And I like a lot of the, the pace and directness that she brings to the French attack. But I think it's unsettled France a little bit. And I contrast that to Germany, who you go through that team front to back, left to right. They all know what their jobs are in that team. They all know what their responsibilities are. Germany as a team know what they are. They can toggle between different approaches. We've seen them stand off teams like Spain a little bit more and and be more selective in their pressing. And they've got really smart pressing triggers. And then we've seen other games where it's been on them to impose their, 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 their own style a little bit more and low defensive blocks. So to me, Germany are just a more complete team than France. That doesn't mean that they've got better players than France. I think you can go through all the players that you highlighted there, Joe, um, Renard and uh, Diani and Cascarino and Mallard, even though she hasn't been first choice, all brilliant, brilliant players. But in terms of the, the actual team unit, I'm, I, I just feel like Germany might be a better team than France in this tournament. And it would not surprise me. In fact, if I, would, if I was to make a prediction, I think Germany will win this match. But as I say, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if France, they're capable of of producing moments of brilliance. The thing that I'm suspicious of, they seem to dip in and out of games. So even in matches where they are dominant, they've scored five goals in the opening match against Italy. Italy still had periods of that match where they were on top. And when you're playing teams as good as Germany, maybe that might make a difference. So, so Graham, you're saying there that Germany uh, could conquer Austria, then roll through France with the hope of reaching oh England. If only there was some sort of historical allegory we could apply. Nope, can't, can't, can't think of anything. No, nope, me either, me either. Okay, um, Taylor, England. Let's talk about England for a little bit, who are the favourites with the bookmakers, but have been a little bit inconsistent at times, but uh, had a pretty dramatic extra time win this past Wednesday over Spain, as we mentioned, with Ella Toon's late volley at the end of normal time, and that big, big win out from Georgia. Stanway, a slightly controversial game in that the Spanish weren't too happy with how certain refereeing events went in that one. But in terms of England... Um, did we learn anything extra from that, Taylor? Yeah, that I think that there's a pragmatism to them. There's a ruthlessness to them. And when the backs are against the wall, it's fight, not flight. And I think that that a lot of credit for that goes to Serena Wiegmann. I know Graham's got some thoughts on her. I would say I thought Georgia Stanway was was incredible in this game, uh, especially in the second half when, again, sort of somebody needed to step up and, and perform. She did just that. And she gets the, I think she carries the ball forward to, 
sort of open up the defense a little bit to to create some uncertainty for Spain, and that helps facilitate the equalizer. And then obviously she gets the winner with just a a, a blast from distance. It's so well struck, but it felt very appropriate for a player that I thought was so important for England, uh, obviously before kickoff, but then once they go 1-0 down to sort of still have that belief and not have that, uh-oh, we haven't been in this experience before, and now we crumble. I think that they were able to rise to the occasion and get the result. Speaks volumes about uh, what this team is doing and where they're going. And and that's what Suna Wigman brings, is that mm-hmm. assurance. She's obviously been here before. She won the, the last Euros with, as, the, as the Netherlands manager. And you contrast the way England are playing now, where even when things are going against them you you just you'd still get a feeling that something's going to turn they're going to make some changes they're going to turn it around and you contrast that to when they were managed by Phil Neville where everything was a little bit frantic they were very prone to defensive calamities and it didn't really feel like there was there was much control to the performances and in this game I thought the, the contrast between Jorge Vilda the, the Spain manager and Wigman was really interesting and the changes they made I referenced them at the top of the show but I'll go into them a little bit more in depth here so Wigman did two things she made made a change in personnel so Ellen White had struggled all game long and so Alessio Russo came on to be a bit more physical she's more effective at I think she's more effective at kind of getting the elbows up at roughing up defenders at winning headers and Ellen White is good at that as well she's a, an orthodox number nine but Russo at this tournament has just been very effective at, at, at winning those headers and obviously that's what she did for the equalizer but if you look at the the equalizer you also see the effectiveness of the other two changes that Wiegmann made. She recognised that England couldn't leave Russo isolated up front her own, so on came Ella Toon to, Toon, sorry, to essentially fill the space around her, and that's what happened with equalising goal. And the reason that Toon had that space to run onto the ball inside the box from the, the Russo flick-on, from the Russo header, was that Paredes and Pilar Leon were occupied by Russo and Millie Bright, who was up there in, in the box at that time. And that came from another tactical shift that Wiegmann made. So Wiegmann puts on Alex Greenwood, which seemed like a slightly strange decision when England are chasing a goal. Obviously, Alex Greenwood being a, a defensive player, either a centre-back or a left-back. But what that allowed England to do was to go to a back three and push Millie Bright up as an auxiliary forward, the sort of Sergio Ramos, Gerard Piquet thing. And it worked. And it might have been a bit rough and ready, but it was more than just a route one approach. There was a bit of tactical basis to it. And when you can you contrast that with the decisions that Jorge Vilda made, where he takes off Esser Gonzalez, who was the goal scorer, his use of Gonzalez throughout this tournament was baffling to me because Spain, after losing Pateas and, and Hermoso, they, they lack that, that cutting edge. And they have Esser Gonzalez, who is a brilliant striker for Real Madrid, but uh, Vilda didn't really seem that keen on using her for every game. He starts her in this game. She scores. She has a very good game. She's running the channels as well. She's making the ball stick in the final third, giving Fran- uh, sorry, Spain that threat. And then uh, Spain, when they're 1-0 up, have the opportunity to see this game out. And I kind of thought the opportunity was there for them to do that. Vilda takes her off. Garcia comes on, doesn't do an, an effective job. And by the time England equalize Spain are set to try and contain that game and by that point they failed they don't really have another they they can't toggle back to being a a proactive team so I think Wiegmann certainly turned the game for England and and Vilda will have to field some questions on some of the decisions he made. Graham I'm going to make a a wild comparison is there Guardiola uh, traits in Wiegmann in I'm just thinking in sort of bringing on the less established players and taking off the more established players to get a result. I'm just thinking, maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way, but like Ronaldinho and Deco being dumped by Guardiola straight away when he comes in. And it's kind of in match version of that from Wiegmann. 
There, I think there's that's an interesting comparison. I wouldn't say in terms of her demeanor she's very Pep Guardiola because I think she exudes calmness, and I don't know if you would ever say that about Pep Guardiola <laughs> when he's jumping around on the touchline. The other thing about Wiegmann is she doesn't tend to change her starting lineup much. I think when she uh, guided the, the Netherlands to the last Euros, she only started 13 players. And it's kind of been a similar story for England in this tournament. There's a lot of discussion at the moment about whether Alessio Russo should start ahead of Ellen White. Ellen White has scored some goals, but I, I don't think she's had a particularly brilliant tournament for England. And so normally you would think, okay, get Russo in. She's had a great impact in those games against Northern Ireland and, and Spain. I don't I don't anticipate that Wiegmann will make those changes. She, just, she likes to keep things consistent from the start. But in game, I agree that she is very willing to make bold decisions. She is willing to take off established stars for some of the younger players. And I think that's one of the, the one of the real positives out of this tournament for England is yes, they do have in some areas a slightly aging starting lineup, but there are those young players coming through like like Elatoun, like Russo, who are ready to, to carry this national team into the, the World Cup and future tournaments. And Wiegmann has used them very, very effectively. So the counter-argument to keeping Russo on the bench is by the time you bring her off the bench in the final stages of matches, opponents are tired, defenders are tired. They don't want to face someone like Alessio Russo. So I can understand why Wiegmann would stick with uh, with White. But she just I'm just so impressed with Serena Wiegmann. She has the, the biggest difference, having watched England at previous major tournaments where they've had the talent, and you kind of think, every time you think, they're going to stumble here. They're going to stumble here, England. They're not going to reach the final. I don't get the sense from this England team. I think they're going to reach the final, and I think they've got a very good chance of winning it. Is that hard to say for you, Graham? It is, yep. There okay. are tears rolling down my face well as, done. I, as I say it. Very, very professional. I appreciate it. Joe, uh, a note on Sweden as well. I saw them described um, on, on a site yesterday as the best losing side of the 21st century. I don't know how I feel about that, but uh, they're at this stage now. What have you made of them, Joe? What does that mean? Yeah, I don't know. Weird. I mean, okay. It just means well, they haven't got any the silverware they deserve, I suppose. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah, guess. Does that I just mean, mean they're the best team that hasn't won something? That's a pretty harsh way to phrase that. You could just call them a very good team. That would be fine. <laughs> Either way. Either way, I do think Sweden are a good team. They wouldn't have made it this far in the tournament without that. And they are coming into this whole competition as much as we want to go by FIFA rankings, they're the top-rated European team in this competition, and they're a good—they're a good group. They were dominant against Belgium. They were—they were fine in open play. They really created a, a bunch of chances on on set pieces. And credit to Belgium's goalkeeper Evrard for standing on her head throughout this entire match, basically barring just that one goal that Sweden get laid on in this game. I think there was a lot to like here from Sweden. Um, it wasn't the most eye-catching game because of how lopsided it felt and because of how little Belgium offered. But credit to Sweden for denying any real attacking options for Belgium. They're really comfortable, Sweden, in that 4-4-2 defensively that ranges into a 4-2-3-1. In the attack, Aslani is, is a brilliant playmaker in that forward line. And, and Aslani to Blackstinius almost got Sweden on the board in the 24th minute of this game, nine, uh, 10-9, to nine, excuse me, in that attacking midfielder to number 9 combination. It's, it's, ruled, it's called back, and the, the goal is called off in that moment. But you can see how dangerous this team can be Part of my thought about this game for Sweden and why maybe I wasn't as enriched by it, part of it was Belgium, but part of it also is the fact that Sweden had to be the protagonist in this game. And, and they're capable of doing that, but their possession play isn't mesmerizing like Spain. It's not efficient and, and still even mesmerizing at times like France. It's not even 
maybe as creative as I would say Germany or England are, though those two teams are much slow. more in the middle Joe, of the spectrum. The word you're looking for is slow. It's yeah, it's, it's, slow, it's slow. It's slow. It's reliant on on crosses, and it's just not that great to watch. Not, at least it certainly wasn't in this game. They're not great at creating. They're not great at creating their own spaces. And I think so, they're much better when when the spaces left them by the opponent. And that is a perfect setup for this semifinal, right? That Sweden won't actually have to be the protagonists all the time. Really, they, they won't be against England. It'll be England, I would imagine, that are taking the game by the scruff of the neck, and Sweden then can defend a little bit more. They're not going to be full-on bunker in their half. That's not how they play. But they will sit back a little bit. They will try to absorb pressure, win the ball, and then break into space. Now, I was really impressed by England in, in their quarterfinal at how well they defended against Spain. It was really just one individual mistake, and, and other than that, from Rachel Daly, I thought they were brilliant and, and didn't really give Spain a whole lot of breathing room in areas that mattered so England I think are a quality group defensively so it's not going to be a gimme for Sweden but I think this semi-final against England sets up for a far more entertaining game than Sweden's quarterfinal and it also suits Sweden a little bit better because they won't always have to be the ones trying to push the game forward Taylor your thoughts on Sweden and learnings from the game the win over Belgium that 11th hour win yeah, uh, you guys ready for penalties? Because we're going to penalties oh, in this boy. game. Uh, th- that, is, that is my feeling. I will say I am slightly more negative on this fixture just because I think England versus Germany and Sweden versus France would kind of set teams up to have to figure some things out. I think England against Spain, I didn't see a high-intensity press consistently. I saw them sitting off and sort of not trying to be beaten by Spain's possession. But I also... I just think they that then slowed them down. And I think a Germany team going into England and trying to press them, you're going to get, like, one of those forces is going to break, something is going to happen. England v. Sweden, I can see both of them just being very diligent in their build-out, very slow. They're not going to step and press every single time. And I could see this game taking a while to get going. Uh, so maybe I've guaranteed that we'll get a goal in the first minute or two. But this just seems like a game where no one, especially with what's on the line, especially with Sweden apparently being serial losers and England being inclined to get uh, some silverware themselves, I could see both teams taking a cautious approach to start. And that's where maybe it will come down to some individual battles. Uh, I would be uh, slightly nervous if if I were. Um, who was it who got uh, skinned uh, in the in the uh, England-Spain game? Was it Rachel, it was Rachel, Rachel Daly? Daly Rachel Daly? Yeah. yeah. She, and she gets, I think, also megged for the, the, the Spain goal as well. So maybe if I'm Kosovari Aslani, I'm going at her every now and then and trying to take her on and seeing what happens there in some 1v1 battles. I think that's sort of where we're going to get some, some sparks early on. I'm hoping I'm wrong, but this feels like it could be a game where both teams are sort of set up to not concede, not necessarily to win the game outright. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased, Taylor, that you highlighted Rachel Daly because not to pile on her a little bit, but I think it's going to be interesting to see whether Wiegmann gives her a little bit more protection yeah. because I, I I thought she didn't have a good game against Spain at all. Del Castillo coming on at halftime gave her all sorts of problems. And as you say, she was very vulnerable for, for the Spain goal. Of course, we should mention that Rachel Daly isn't a natural left back. Amazingly, she she plays as a number nine for the, for the Houston Dash. And she's been most uh, used most commonly as, as a right back for England until Wiegmann started using her as a left back. And Wiegmann does have, have other, other options. So Alex Greenwood can play there. She has only recently kind of become more of a, a central defender, so she can play left back. Demi Stokes is a maybe a stronger defensive option. So if there is going to be a personnel change from Wiegmann, which again I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on it, but if there is going to be one, maybe uh, at left back is where it could come. And it's going to be interesting how Sweden 
attack that side of the pitch because until now they've kind of channeled the majority of their attacks down the left through uh, Fridolina Rolfo but England are reasonably strong down the right side. I know Lucy Bronze is attack-minded, but I, I don't anticipate her having the same problems dealing with Rolfo that, that Daly had with, with the Spanish team on the other side. So maybe you do have Aslani, who I, I think I said to you last week, Taylor, is more effective in that central playmaking role, but she was playing out on the right side early in the tournament when Blackstenius was injured. So maybe Aslani goes out to the right side just to get someone with a bit of technical ability who can beat Rachel Daly and get into the box in much the same way that that Spain did in that quarterfinal, that will be one of the the key uh, individual battles yeah. in this in the semifinal. Yeah, and and I think like we could see a very open, interesting game. That is a possibility. Both of these teams are very good, but against Belgium and Joe, I hear your point about Belgium sort of sitting off, letting Sweden take the game to them. I doubt England do that quite as much. But I have in my notes multiple times up until the twenty fifth minute, like I wish Sweden would be more aggressive, even in times when they did sort of press or they were able to funnel uh, Belgian attacks into one area, win the ball back relatively high up the pitch. I never saw them sort of bomb forward from there. Rarely did I see them bomb forward and try to exploit that counterattacking opportunity. Usually it was advance the ball, then sort of build a base camp, get possession, move the ball around, and then we'll see what happens. And the time that they were sort of finally direct and very aggressive is when they get the goal in the 25th minute that then is disallowed for a very marginal offside. But I think if they can sort of mix in a bit more of that directness and try to catch England if they overcommit numbers or if there are just sort of mismatches on the pitch. I think a, a bit more directness from Sweden, I think, will do them good against England. Yeah, and there is actually a blueprint for Sweden to follow in this match, going back to the 2016 Olympics where they faced the USA in... Yeah. Uh, that was either the quarterfinals or semifinals and the USA were the, the ball dominant team they were expected to progress Sweden pretty much played on the, on the counter-attack and they end up winning that match so England have to be wary just because they're they're likely going to be the ball dominant team doesn't mean that Sweden can't get in behind them and I think certainly if Sweden get Blackstenius running the channels which we haven't seen much of that from her at this tournament but that's what she does for Arsenal and what she does for Arsenal, she runs the channels and then Miedema takes up the the central positions and they kind of switch those number nine and number 10 positions very, very effectively. So if, if Sweden, obviously they don't have a Miedema, but if they are able to follow that br- blueprint of getting Blackstenius into stand-up channels and then exploiting the space that that creates, that's the sort of thing that could give England a lot of trouble. All right, let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll dig a little more into that England-Sweden semi and the Germany-France one too. Maybe get some predictions as well. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk a little more about England versus Sweden happening this coming Tuesday at Bramall Lane. Uh, Joe, England have a bit of a, a bugbear when it comes to semi-finals. it seems. Lost at this stage in 2015 and 2019 at the World Cup and in the last Euros as well. It would be very English to succumb to a Swedish underdog at this stage, would it not, Joe? It would be. It kind of feels right, especially at home. It even adds to that whole narrative. I do think England are the favorites in this team, and if, I, if I'm going to make a prediction, I think they will win this game. But I, I do agree with Taylor. I can see it being what, what Taylor talked about in the last segment. I can see it being a little cagier, and I can see this thing being relatively even. I, I think both of these squads have a ton of talent. They do have a ton of talent. But I think there are some questions about England's ability to create chances against a really well-organized defense. Spain are, are a very different team than Sweden. And England obviously have scored a bunch of goals in this tournament. But I didn't leave that Spain game thinking, okay, we're in the knockout rounds. England had some of the ball and were really effective when they had it. I I didn't feel that way. A lot of their possession was based around trying to find moments for Meade and Hemp to go 1v1 in wide areas. And they had some success with that, but it didn't really feel like that was enough to open the game up. It might be a different story against Sweden. And like I said, I think they are still the favorites in this game. It's not a gimme, though, for England, Ryan, kind of leading back to getting us back to your point. England, I think, have the advantage here. They have the home crowd. They have uh, maybe the advantage in terms of talent, too, and some momentum coming into this game, coming off of a really huge win, I imagine, emotionally and just in terms of how they played, a relief to get past Spain in a game that they always knew was going to be challenging. So you have that side for England, and then for Sweden, again, I mentioned it earlier. I think Aslani and Blackstinius and how those two players work together is is of paramount importance for Sweden in this game. They are the lifeblood of this team in the attack, and if Sweden can defend well, if they can sit and absorb pressure, I think they're going to be attacking through that 9 and that 10 over and over again in this game. Then flipping it back to England, the question is how well they do defending those players. So I think this is going to be a good game. I don't think it's going to be as, as entertaining or maybe as open as Germany versus France. But England, for me, I have a, a pretty strong advantage here. It's not a gimme for them, though, and I don't think people should be writing off Sweden in this one. Uh, Graham, seems that Joe and Taylor think this one might be a slightly dour affair. Do you, are you concurring with that? I certainly go along with the idea that England are the favourites. I, I would be surprised if they don't win this match. And if, you, if you're looking back at the teams that they have played already and comparing it to another test, um, because you, that, that Spain quarterfinal was something that they hadn't faced before, so that was, that was a real question that they, they needed to answer, I would almost compare it to Norway, not just because of the Scandinavian thing, because they also had a strong kind of superstar attack. You kind of felt like England would dominate the centre of the pitch. Sweden liked to play the, uh, this kind of double pivot with Aslani drifting between them and the attack, and that was similar to what Norway did as well with uh, Hegerberg and Grant Grim Hansen as as the as the the two kind of attackers, and then Reuter as as the as the drifter, and that didn't go so well for Norway as we all know. So I'm I'm not saying that England are going to smash Sweden eight 0 but in just just in terms of it being, I always look at these games. Once you get to this stage of the tournament, you look at what are the good matchups for teams and what are the bad matchups for team. And for England, I, th- I think this is a relatively good matchup for them, both in terms of the profile of Sweden and also the fact England have a talent advantage. But these are four quality teams at this stage of the tournament, and I guess nothing would really surprise me. Taylor, any thoughts on key players who might have an impact on this semi? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would still say Aslani uh, could be a, a difference maker for Sweden. Uh, I'll, I'll go back 
uh, to to Georgia, uh, Georgia Stanway. I think she uh, like did enough to to really just sort of remind me how good she can be. I think there's other players for England who get more of the headlines, who get more of the attention, but I think she can be that midfield glue and she can kind of help build some consistency if they ha- are having trouble uh, getting going. But I, I think this is going to be still a very interesting game because I think there's enough talent on on both sides that. You sort of can't, if you're England, you can't throw it all out and just be like, all right, they're going to be ultra, ultra defensive. We can be super attacking. I think for Sweden, there's a, a, an awareness that they also have plenty of attacking talent and plenty of ability, so they don't need to be ultra defensive. So I think it's going to be a very cagey game. I think it probably comes down to managerial adjustments. And in that regard, I would give England the advantage uh, with Serena Wiegmann for all the reasons we've already talked about. I think it will end up being anybody's game, but I, I think I would lean on the home side to get the result. That's what I like to hear. Graham, any other players you want to pick out before we move on to Germany, France? I guess we should mention Beth Mead, given that I think she's still the, the current top goal scorer in, in this tournament. And yep. I think her importance to this England team actually goes beyond the goals as well. So she was actually kept pretty quiet against Spain in the quarterfinal. And I thought that was one of the things Spain did really well was they were they were smarter than any team previously at handing Engl- uh, handling sorry England down the, the right side. Until that match, it had been a pretty clear dynamic for England on the right, where Lucy Bronze would carry the ball forward. The the opposition defence would then be left with a decision of whether to press or stand off. If the clothes are down, the pocket of space is opened up for Mead. I spoke about this last week, but I'll go over it for for the sake of reference. Uh, pocket space is opened up for Mead. If they stand off, Lucy Bronze can get a crossaway or a pass into a dangerous position. England have been really good down that right side. If, if Sweden don't handle that right side well, then I think Mead is going to get the space to do a lot of damage. If they can get midfielders around Lucy Bronze and cut off the supply line to, to Mead, which is what Spain did all the way through that game, then that that will uh, that will give them a chance. Joe, let's talk about Germany, France. Uh, I was surprised me. This is France's first ever semi. They made the quarterfinal um, at each of the last three editions, as well as two last two World Cups and the 2016 Olympics as well. Um, but by no means an underdog in this one, Joe. Um, what, what do you think the key storylines are going to be from this one? I I think a lot of this comes down to Germany's press versus France's possession, and that is a little bit. Uh, remedial because France will also press and they will also force Germany to make difficult decisions with their with their possession play. But that's where I start in this game, especially based off of how the two quarterfinals that these two teams played and how how they those games flowed. I think Germany, a big part of this team, it kind of fits the the whole style when we think about Germany and really that part of Europe as soccer playing countries. So much of what we think about is aggressive pressure. And in Germany's game against Austria in the quarterfinals was almost frenetic at times. Germany willing to leave themselves exposed in the back for the benefit of stepping to press and, and win the ball. And Austria, for their part, I thought had some good moments playing through that pressure, but by and large didn't look fully capable of breaking through Germany, either with direct play over the top and winning second balls and attacking from there, or just by trying to build with more systematic and patient possession. Austria didn't really look up for that as well as they played, I think, defensively in that game. They weren't up for it in the attack. France, in my mind, will be up for it. There's a large gap in quality between France and Austria when you look at the technical ability that they have and even some of the speed and just aggression in this France team. They're, I, I, I'm really high on them overall in, in case anybody hasn't been able to tell that at this point. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where it starts for me in this game. Germany's press versus France in the attack. 
how how does Germany end up being exposed or are they able to cover up in the back line? I mean, it's going to be difficult to shut down that, that French front three. That's where I'm starting in this game. Then you can flip it as well and look at how France defends Germany, especially when you look at Magol and, and how they're going to contain her, her drifting between the lines and, and drifting wide into the half spaces to combine can destabilize a team, especially one that plays with a single number six like France does. If Magol can drift to one side or the other and help overload some of those spaces outside of the number six for France and really make their midfield uncomfortable, then I think the balance starts to tip a little bit into Germany's favor. So I'm certainly keeping my eyes on Lena Magol in this game. I think she's going to have a big role to play both defensively and how she presses in Fran- in Germany's shape, excuse me, and, and in the attack, how she tries to drift. I, I'm not even close to feeling confident enough to put money on a game like this. But France, for me, are are the team that I would expect to win this game. It really wouldn't surprise me either way, though. All right. Tate, do you feel the same way? And your thoughts on the key uh, themes and storylines from this one? I, I honestly don't really have a good read on how this one's going to play out, if I'm being totally honest, uh, because I think France have been obviously very, very good, but then I think also have stalled at times. I think Germany... Uh, I would be leaning to like towards feeling more confident about except that against Austria, I would just want to go back to the, the just their possession was so sloppy and maybe that's them playing down to an opponent or just trying to sort of not give up a cheap opportunity by getting caught uh, in possession on the press. And so they were more reliant on just keeping the ball moving, getting away, getting away from that press. But I think against France, that's a team that can really punish you if you are that sort of wasteful with your possession, if you are giving the ball back to that team, eventually they're just going to have the talent to, to at the very least, build the momentum in sustained uh, attacking waves that uh, I think eventually you're sort of like battling from your own defensive third as opposed to taking the game to France. And I think that's them letting that's them letting France play their game. A key part of how I think France can go about doing that uh, would be uh, Bilbao, uh, who Joe mentioned is that sort of lone uh, defensive midfielder. Uh, not from the defensive side, but from the attacking side, a thing I, I noticed uh, against the Dutch was that she, a couple of different times, would receive the ball with maybe one touch very quickly, open open up her hips, and then fire a diagonal to the opposite side of the pitch. And that does a very good job of sort of spreading the, the field of play, obviously, and switching the point of attack, but also against a team that will be pressing in two touches to be able to move the ball 40 yards and do so with a sort of driven pass to feet that not only nullifies the press, but it also is a thing that I think Germany have to account for some of that ball playing out of the back, be it Bilbao, be it uh, Renard, who we've talked about previously can, can hit a long diagonal into the channels with some speed behind it. So it's not just this looping sort of moon ball, uh, but instead it's, it's a ball that people have to kind of adjust to and deal with. I think some of that distribution will help France get out of that press. I think also France showed that how good they are in adjusting to what the opponent is throwing at them. I couldn't get over uh, against uh, the Netherlands how they were routinely in a 4-4-2 and it was Gayoro stepping up there to be alongside Malara on occasion with Gianni dropping deeper. And I think the idea was to basically not let uh, the fullbacks get ahead of the wingers, uh, the Dutch fullbacks to get ahead of the wingers. France always, I think, kept their defensive shape and really just funneled the uh, the Netherlands through the middle and then would pounce and then would attack. And I think their game plan was pretty solid. Obviously, they end up getting the result, so I'm guessing they would agree. Uh, but I think for Germany, it's how do you disrupt what France want to do while also not leaving your expo- yourself exposed because... 
if you sort of are gambling on them on like sort of swarming numbers in the middle, they obviously have the speed and talent out wide that in a 1v1, I don't think you'd back your defenders more often than not. So I think for Germany, it's going to be a really delicately poised approach. For France, I think it's going to be about sort of staying consistent, not getting frustrated, which they didn't uh, in the game against the Dutch. If they can sort of keep that calmness and just sort of rely on themselves to get something, uh, I think... It could be their game. So I really think it, it could go either way. I think it's sort of whichever team blinks first and more often will be mm. the one that I think uh, ends up losing this one. Diani's going to be very important yeah. for France. I think she's got to be one of the most press-resistant players in the world. She is brilliant at controlling the ball under pressure, not only controlling it, but then doing something with it. The number of times um, against the Netherlands, she received the ball in a difficult position, whether that was with her, her, her back to the defenders from a throw-in or out in the touchline when a, a pass was those passes you were talking about, Taylor, from from Renard primarily that are getting rattled into her and she's able to dribble out of trouble or find a pass that puts a, a teammate in a good position. And as we've kind of already covered, Germany as a high-pressing side are going to be applying pressure. So France are going to have to, at some point, I think, going to have to play through Germany and Diani's one of the, the players who can do that. All right, one thing remains for us to do, gentlemen. That's to make some predictions. Joe, you listening? Prediction time. Oh, yeah, my favourite, yeah, my favourite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Graham, <laughs> I'll start with you. I'll let Joe think about his. Um, i got a feeling you think England are going to face Germany in this here final coming up this uh, Sunday, the 31st. What do you think? Yeah, I do. I've, I've had that sense from really the first match day where it, when it became apparent how the, the groups were going to pan out. Because if you remember Group B, I, I'm not, I, I wasn't sure which way Germany and Spain were going to be, which way round they were going to be. So you couldn't really plot the, the knockout rounds. But after it became clear Germany were going to win that, that, that group after match day one, I've gone with a, an England-Germany final all the way through. It just kind of feels slightly destined. For me, um, I understand France are a good team I, I am a little bit suspicious of their just their structure and tactical acumen, and I'm not suspicious of that at all with Germany. They found an answer to every question that's been asked of them at this tournament, even when they haven't played that well. So I have them coming through that that semi-final, and I think England are going to win 1-0 against Sweden. It'll probably probably be quite a tight, cagey encounter, but actually when it comes down to the opportunities, I, I just don't anticipate Sweden creating all that much. And yeah, it'll be a, an England-Germany final at Wembley. All right, I can handle that. Tater, how you feeling? England Germany final. Wow, that could be that could be dramatic. Uh, I I really do think it could be any one of these teams, and I wouldn't be surprised. I, I have enjoyed Sweden throughout this tournament, and I do feel like they have learned something about themselves in each game. But I think England have just been so very good. And I think of the teams that aren't here, Spain is probably the best one for England to have found a way to get past them. Doesn't make me feel like they, they are strong enough uh, to get past Sweden and make it to the final. So I would definitely go with England. France versus Germany is a tougher one because I, I think with what I've seen, I, I think that the German pressing is going to be a problem. I think France at times have been more individualistic. But at the same time, I keep counting out France and keep expecting them to underperform, and then they keep doing things. So I will say England-France in the final. Why not? I, I'm happy to be wrong on both accounts, but that's my prediction. All right. Uh, Joseph Lowry, the oracle of predictions. What say you? I mean, I kind of already gave mine earlier on, so I'm just going to keep on keeping on with what I said before. I think England will beat Sweden, and I think France will beat Germany. 
All right, there we have it, guys. Well, we shall find out this coming Sunday. We're going to find out, actually, this coming Tuesday and Wednesday. But the final is this Sunday, 12 Eastern, from Wembley Stadium. It is uh, displacing the Community Shield, which is going to be played in Leicester, I believe. Uh, in that's the real headline. Yeah, that's the real headline. <laughs> there we go. Gents, thank you so much for running through Euro 2022 with me. Graham Rutherford, thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, pleasure as always. Right back at you. Taylor Rockwell. Bravo. Uh, thank you. Bravo to you, my friend. And listeners, we will be back Thursday with a review of the semifinals and a final preview. So we're not done talking about the women's heroes uh, this week. Uh, more still to come. That is correct. Thank you for doing the bit of my job I didn't do there, Taylor. <laughs> I appreciate my, my that. <laughs> for now, listener, we'll catch you on the feed very soon. But for now, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>